Well, it's <clears throat> always good to have the kids and do what they do. And, you know, we're, we're uh, if you're a visitor here, you know, we're, we're kind of not like your normal church a little bit. Um, we don't... Uh, most churches today, they're having a, a Christmas pageant, you know, and they're having all kinds of stuff going on, and it, it's all about Christmas and all about, you know, all those things, and I'm not against any of that. I mean, I have a Christmas tree at my house, and I we have presents, and, you know, I, I it's just one of the holidays that come around, but uh, I usually don't preach a Christmas message. I usually just keep on moving. I think that, uh, I, and I don't take this wrong, I, I think that you know, people who set aside one day to to uh, be thankful that the Lord came into the world uh, is probably not the best thing to do. I mean, to me, every day is Christmas, the fact that he came uh, t- down for me and all of that. And I, I, my kids, you know, I know a lot of Christian parents, you know, they had felt determined, you know, to make their kids know that there wasn't any Santa Claus because they felt like they were lying to their kids, you know, when the kids grew up and found out that there was no Santa Claus. And I, and I respect a parent's right to do uh, whatever they feel they need to do. Our kids grew up thinking there was a Santa Claus. Uh, we go down there today. John Hill's going to dress up like Santa Claus. He's the closest we got. Uh, <laughs> you know, he has always been done it for years, you know. It isn't the fact that he, he doesn't want to do it anymore. It's the fact that after 20 years of doing it, nobody else wants to get into that outfit that he wears. <laughs> but anyway, but I, you know, I'm a, re- I'm a realist. Kids are all gone now. There ain't no Santa Claus. <laughs> there was at one time. He shot down over North Korea last year. <laughs> all his little helpers got hooked up with the seven dwarfs, and they're now jihadists. <laughs> Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, his nose is red because he's an alcoholic. You need to understand these things. But we always have a good time, no matter what we do. And uh, I look at it as if it's a time of year that I can get close to somebody to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a good thing. You know, I understand the whole concept, and... uh, uh, Craig sent me a great email this week on uh, on uh, on history of Santa, which which, which Craig at. That was great. That was a good thing. I, I enjoy that, and uh, you know all those things. I, I enjoy reading stuff like that. But but we're here today. We're going to get in the Bible a little bit. And last week uh, we looked at the wise woman in Proverbs chapter fourteen, and uh, we started uh, chapter fourteen last week. And uh, how she built her house. And it said, every wise woman buildeth her house, but a foolish woman plucketh it down with her hands. He that walketh in his uprightness feareth the Lord, but he that is perverse in his ways despises him. And we kind of took that verse apart and looked at it. We now know that uh, the woman, the wise woman, uh, we, we looked at it uh, from an inspirational application. It'll be, uh, you know, your body. Uh, your body is the temple of God. It's the house of God as the bride of Christ. We also looked at it as uh, it's a reference to a real mom and her family. A uh, mother has so much input into her family and, uh, and uh, what the kids learn in those early years. And, you know, either building them in righteousness or and many times dragging them through the sins of their mother's life. And it always has a, a negative effect on it. But today we want to we look at verses 3 through 7. And uh, our attention now again is going to be on this same woman. Uh, as she follows or she doesn't follow the principles of the Word of God. Now, you want to keep in mind, and I told you this before, that there's three aspects to the book of Proverbs. So you always want to keep it in that time frame or that mindset. First of all, we know that from a historical uh, application, this is Solomon talking to his own son, giving him instruction, Rehoboam. Uh, secondly, we know that doctrinally it's a picture of God giving instruction to the nation of Israel, who the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4 is also is a corporate nation, God's son. So God's giving them instructions. But we know that in a practical application, it's you and me as God's son. And through the Proverbs we find, and we've been kind of going back and showing you all three because that's so vital to be able to learn how to take your Bible apart and put it back together that way. But we always want to come out with a practical because that's what's going to help you through life and everything that you do. And today we're going to look at this woman again, and we're going to read uh, verses uh, uh, 3 through 7 out of Proverbs chapter 14, and it simply says this, "...and the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride." 
but the lips of the wise shall preserve them. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. A faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. A scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not, but knowledge is easy unto him that understandeth. Go from the presence of a foolish man, and when thou perceiveth not in him the lips of knowledge. Uh, Bubba, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning and pray for us as we get into the Bible together? Amen. Now, this is a great passage today, and it's going to deal with a subject that is the, probably the number one subject in the Bible as it relates to people with problems in their lives. And uh, this will be a good study on the sin of pride. And the uh, book of Proverbs says much about it. you find it popping up all the time. And uh, how it will affect you and how uh, you, should, you should deal with it. Now, the first part of verse 1 says, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. Now, just as you can get uh, your notes in here, uh, I want you to, you know, keep it together here as best you can. The rod of pride in the mouth of a fool, as you find it here, will doctrinally will be the Antichrist. You need to understand that. When you find this wicked man in Proverbs and uh, he's always doing something that is, is wrong or hurting somebody, it'll always be in a doctrinal application um, the, uh, the man of sin, the Antichrist. And for that, you'll want to look at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 4 and Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5. And those are references there. And you'll find that the Antichrist has a rod of pride that comes out of his mouth here that is really a rod of oppression by which he puts the nation of Israel under during the tribulation by what he says to them and what he does with them uh, by what he says. In uh, adjacent to that, when you study it out, uh, you'll find that when the Lord comes back in Revelation chapter 19... When you get on down around verse 11 through 15, you'll know that he establishes the millennial reign of Christ. And the Bible says in those verses that when he uh, comes back and establishes righteous reign, the Bible calls it a, a rule with a rod of iron. So the word rule or rod here uh, in the Bible, whether it's good or it's bad, will always be connected to power. When you find it in the use of the Antichrist, it's what he says in a negative way that controls people. When you find it from the Lord as the rod of iron in the millennial reign, it's always going to be a reference to the righteous reign and what he says that puts people under a, a power that is the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But, you know, also, as for you and for me, we want to look at the practical, inspirational application. This rod of pride will be found in many of God's people. You know, I've been around for a while and dealt with people for most of my adult life, and one of the things I can honestly say to you, that every sin that an unsaved man can get into, a saved person can get into. Amen. We think that when we get saved, that it, ins- it, it isolates us from sin. It really doesn't. You have the ability to insulate yourself from sin, but it'll never isolate you from it. And you'll find that a saved person can do the exact same things uh, as an unsaved person. A lot of people have a tough time with that because they don't understand the difference between, you know, the flesh and the spirit and the warfare that goes on. But you're going to find that that's simply the way it is. And the rod of pride in a fool's mouth, and uh, it'll be seen very clearly in, in God's people just like you'll see it in unsaved people. I've seen God's people just like this verse. And if you're around for any length of time or in the ministry or just dealing with people and you got any kind of uh, understanding of the scriptures, uh, you will too in time. And when you have a Christian who will not yield to uh, what's wrong in their life, and I've dealt with people where they had issues in their life and, you know, you try to help them and you try to talk with them about that, they'll never see it. They'll never believe that there's anything wrong with them. And it's always somebody else. And when you see a Christian who will not yield when they're wrong, uh, it will simply be because his or her pride has gotten in the way. Pride is something that is absolutely incredible. One of the greatest studies in all of the Bible. Pride will always keep a child of God from seeing his real issues. 
Power becomes, uh, pride becomes a power in their life. And, uh, you know, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, we've talked about this before, not only when we came through Proverbs 6, but I've talked about it lots of times on Bible study. You'll find in that passage the seven things that God hates. And one of the things that God hates very clearly there uh, is uh, these seven things that he hates here are, are make up the seven characteristics of the devil. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 and 45, the Bible talks about the nation of Israel. And the Bible talks about an unclean spirit goes into the nation of Israel. And then it leaves. And uh, when it comes back, the Bible says that he brings seven other spirits more wicked than himself. Those are the seven spirits you find here in Proverbs chapter 6. And so many of God's people today, and it's an incredible thing to, to look at and to study and truly to understand. So many of God's people today who are truly, honestly, believingly saved, yet they walk in this false spirit of Antichrist and mistake it for the spirit of God. And it's an incredible thing. And I know people say, well, how does that happen? How can a saved man who has the spirit of God living inside him, how does that person get to the point where they follow the wrong spirit make all the mistakes in life that they can make and come to the point where they still claim to be saved and many, many times justify themselves. Oh, I've heard them justify a lifestyle that is, would be unbelievable uh, by simply because of the fact that they cannot see their real issue. And somebody says, how does that happen? Well, it happens for a couple of ways. The first thing you want to understand is the fact that in our list in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the first characteristic of the devil, the Bible says that he has. Now, he's got a lot of problems. And he lists those things in there in an incredible way that I don't have time to go into it. I could take those seven things that he does or says about him in Proverbs 6, and I could show you the devil's attitude from Genesis right on through the rest of the Bible. It's an incredible study. But the first thing it says about the devil in Proverbs chapter 6 is he had a proud look. A proud look. And now all sin will start with pride. And pride is simply, a proud look is simply how you look at things. Do you see it as it really is, or do you see it the way you want to see it? The second thing is you study, uh, when you go back to Ezekiel 14 and Isaiah chapter 28, that the Bible says that the devil, when he was lifted up and he began to have his problem with pride and a proud look, he had a proud heart. His heart got lifted up. The proud look will always come from a proud heart. Then the Bible says with that, that when you get knowledge, it will puff you up and falsely lift you up. And then you get, because of your pride, you get a false sense of spirituality. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We know about the church at Corinth. It was a baby church that had all kinds of problems. And what he says, Paul says to them in these two verses, he says, you know what? Paraphrase here. He says, you've got a little bit of knowledge. You've got truth. But because you have no balance in the truth, that truth has lifted you up to the point where now you become prideful with what you do know. And when you get to that point, you can't really teach anybody anything. The third thing, or the fourth thing, the Bible shows us that, uh, that pride through Satan will blind us to the truth of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Bible says, Whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds... He doesn't blind your eyes, he blinds your mind because when you get a proud look, you get blinded and you can't see things the way they really are and you're blinded to it. The fifth thing, he says that pride cometh before a fall and destruction, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8. A guy gets himself so lifted up or a lady gets herself so lifted up, she doesn't see things the way they really are they, don't, they go through life and, and never taking responsibility and thinking that everything that they do is okay, and it, it all leads to a disaster. Then the last thing is pride will affect a man's attitude of heart about everything. And yet, they'll try to maintain the illusion that they're spiritual. Pride will do three things to a person. It affects three aspects of our lives. It affects, first of all, the way you look at things. 
It affects, second of all, the way you think about things. And then the third thing, it affects the way that you speak about things. A rod of pride coming out of his mouth. Now, I'm sure probably if you've been around here any length of time, the great model for this in the Bible of pride in a man's life, Christian's life. I'm not even talking about unsaved people today. Unsaved people are, 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 can come and go, do whatever. I'm talking about God's people. Because as I said earlier, there isn't a sin that an unsaved man or woman does that a saved child of God cannot do also. And the model of this will be Genesis chapter 1-1, which also ties into Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, going way back when God and Lucifer, long before all sin entered into the world. And, uh, you know, you think about this. God had given Lucifer a tremendous ministry over all that God had. The Bible tells us that he was the covering cherub. In other words, he covered everything that God had. It was like God created everything, and then he put Lucifer over it. That was his ministry. And yet they were so close. They were so close. You know, they're they're so close in the Bible before they fell that the Mormon church sees how close they are. They actually get the idea that Christ and the devil were brothers, which is an interesting concept. But they they actually see that because they see how close they were way back then. Lucifer got all his knowledge, all of his wisdom, all of his beauty, all of his light, all of his splendor and glory from his spiritual father, God. And God the Father made him a key part of his plan. It's an incredible study to go back. But Lucifer got disillusioned with God. There came a day when Lucifer looked at God and did he look at him the same way? God had, the Bible says that the, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy on creation morning and God had spoken the worlds into existence. But there came a time when Lucifer got lifted up that he did not think God knew what he was talking about anymore. And he did three things. Those three things are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. And they happened all the way back, way back when, but they come to light. And they're the same three things that God's people do when pride gets into their world. You know the first thing that the devil did once he fell or got him to fall? The first thing he did was question God's wisdom. When he shows up in Genesis chapter 3, when he shows up in Genesis chapter 3, he thinks he knows more about the plan than God did. The second thing that he did in Genesis chapter 3, he questioned his word. He said to Eve, yea, hath God said? He not only questioned, he not only questioned God's wisdom, he also questioned God's word. And then in Genesis chapter 3 and in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he questions his ability to be God. And you know what? Just like, just like people today... He just didn't question it to himself, did he? Because when you lay the whole thing out and you study it, you find out that when Satan finally left heaven and ceased to be Lucifer and now became Satan, and he led a revolt against God because he thought now that he knew more about it than God did, and the Bible says by his pride and beauty he was lifted up, he took a third of the angels with him, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12. Now, how did, those, how did those third of the angels decide to go with him? I'll tell you how they decided to go with him. When he had questioned God's ability to be God, he didn't keep it to himself. He made some private little inroads with some of the sons of God. And through his pride, he then turned on God and in time led a revolt against heaven. And ultimately, it threw the universe into chaos. And tried, he tried to destroy what God, his father, was doing, or so he thought he could. The first rebellion in the Bible was against authority. The first rebellion in the Bible dealt with a proud look against the authority of the Word of God that what God had established wasn't really that good. And it sets the theme for all rebellion down through history, whether it be the Old Testament nation of Israel. Every time they got into problems, you know how they got into their problem? They got it because they started questioning those three things about God. 
And they never started questioning him until they got prideful. Or it'll be for the New Testament church. You know what gets you in trouble? You know what gets me in trouble? Now, you're sitting here this morning, and most of you are probably in fellowship with God. I hope you are. I hope you're all saved. Maybe some of you aren't, but I hope you are. But you know, honestly, what gets us into trouble gets all of us into trouble. There isn't a different thing that will get you messed up that will get me messed up. You know what really fundamentally, when we start to have issues in our life, you know what it comes down to? It simply comes down to this. We think we know more about how to run our lives than God does. That's how it happens. And you and I have the Bible right there in front of us. You hear it every Sunday. You hear it on Thursday. You hear it in the prayer meetings. You hear it in discipleship. How many times have we talked about the absolute importance of the Word of God in your life and following those principles? But when you and I start to go down the wrong road, we'll always go hand in hand because of one reason. We simply think that we know more about doing it than God does. And that'll be because of pride. Pride will lift us up. Pride will lift us up. Pride will always keep a child of God from seeing his his real issues. And the first rebellion in the Bible was against authority that God had established. Rebellion over the authority through pride, the rod of pride, the power of pride in a person's life. Now, the rod of pride will will be a man or a woman who has lifted himself up to the point where he uses words and actions to, uh, to, uh, to take control or to oppress others with a false sense of truth. The greatest example of that today that I could ever give you is right there. You hear it all the time. You see it all the time. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. I could care one way or the other. But the greatest prideful person out there in public today would be Donald Trump. I'm in, I'm in, and I, I have nothing against the guy. I, I, I have no political persuasion one way or the other. I don't care. It doesn't matter if he gets a nomination to me or not. It really doesn't. I don't care one way or the other. I'm just looking at the example of a man who likes to bully everybody around him. I've never, I only saw his show, that reality show about where he hired and fired people. I, don't, I saw it one time and I said, you know what? I have to deal with this all my life. I'm not going to watch this stupid thing. Where he just, he's so powerful. He's so sure of himself. And he's got more money than anybody in the world. That nobody can touch him as he thinks. So he bullies people. He says about immigration, we're going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. That would be wonderful. We're going to take all the illegal aliens and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to bust them back to, to Mexico. Hey, you know what? We don't have that many buses. <laughs> he talks great things. And some of it is probably good stuff. Uh, so I, somebody says, well, he, I, you know, I heard a commentator the other day saying how much of a bully he was. And now, I understand. But you know what? On one hand, let me just say this. We've had such a weak country for so long, we have been bullied by everybody. North Korea bullies us. Putin bullies us. The drug cartel bullies us. The radical jihadists bully us. The people in Gitmo bully us. Maybe it's time we get us a bully and bully somebody back. I don't know. But there's somebody who you want to talk about, you look up the word pride in the dictionary, his picture will be there. He's done everything. He's never lost. He's never a loser. He said John McCain, because he was captured and shot down over Vietnam, was a loser. That's the height of arrogancy of pride. But that's the way people are. You see, that's the bully type of pride. Then you find the other type of pride, which you find in Christianity with higher education in the scholastic world of the Bible scholars. They won't bully you the same way, but they will hold their education over you and intimidate you, and their pride of what they have learned 
will lift them up to the point that in their mind, you will never get to the same understanding of the Bible that they have. They'll always leave you a little short. They'll always make sure that no matter what you do learn about the Bible, that you always come up of short of what they know about the Bible. That's all they got in life. They've never built a church. They probably haven't won a soul to Christ in 35 years. They sit around and, 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 and study some of the goofiest stuff you ever saw in your life. And yet they're put into position of taking young men and teaching them and young ladies and giving them truth. And yet they hold that truth at arm's length. I say it all the time. You've been around here 10 years. If you don't know the Bible as good as me or better than me, there's something wrong with you. There is no holding back of truth. There's no pride involved in it. I knew a preacher one time that, that his, he, he hated the idea of the King James Bible being the Word of God. And he was a real prominent preacher in the, in the fellowship and around the country. Very well known. His joy in life was finding little preachers out there in southern Missouri or Kansas that were out there with small churches who believed the Bible, and he'd take them and he would write them and cause them into a debate, and he was a great debater, and he would write them letters and belittle them and make fun of them and and, and just chew them up because of the fact that he had such a superior knowledge, and he didn't know squat when it came to the Bible. The rod of pride in a man's mouth. In the Bible, there's obviously great examples. Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 5. Nebel in 1 Samuel chapter 25, 10. Absalom, 2 Samuel 14. Boy, there's a perfect example of the Antichrist. The Bible says that he's one of the 18 types in the Old Testament of the man of sin. The Bible says he was perfect in beauty. The Bible says that he had perfect knowledge. He was everything that the devil was. And you know what he did? He got to that point where he thought he was so great and so good. David was his father who was the king. He tries to lead a revolt against David just like Lucifer led a revolt against God. All because of his pride. And this rod will come from an attitude of pride that develops in a man or a woman's heart as they question God's authority or simply go against God's authority. And all the time in a Christian's world, anyhow, they're all claiming, you know, how much they love God and are following God. In the New Testament church, Paul addresses young Timothy, who was his son in the Lord and was also a pastor. Timothy makes up what we know as the pastoral epistles in the Bible. They're written to pastors, for pastors, everybody, but directly as Timothy and Titus and Philemon, they were pastors. And they're written to keep this in mind when it comes to people and the ministry. And he said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, he said, Timothy, when it comes to putting people that are Christian, when it comes to putting them in a position of leadership or giving them ministry or giving them power or giving them some kind of control, he says, follow this. He says, not a novice. That's a new baby Christian. That's somebody that just got saved. Somebody that maybe has just got through discipleship one or two. He says, not a novice, because he says, less being filled up with pride of what you learn, he'll fall into condemnation of the devil. He says, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. And you see this in young Christians from time to time. They can become prideful. Young men and young ladies, well, uh, they, they get to that point, they'll only see the surface of things. There's no depth to them. There's no real growth to them. They've grown to a part, but now they've got knowledge, they've got a little bit of power, and it goes to their head, and it blinds them. Many times, uh, uh, the people will get to the point, sometimes, that they'll, you can't teach them anything. They see what they see. I've had in my life over the years that you'll come in and they'll ask for help. You'll try to lay out something. And then they'll wind up arguing with you about what they ask you. Not a novice. I want to explain something to you today. I think this will be a help to you. We have in the military what we call time and grade. Now, you know and I know that if you're a Christian here this morning, you're supposed to be a soldier for Jesus Christ. 
and the military principles of any military army on this planet fundamentally start from the Christian and his militant lifestyle. I've told you before that in the Christian life, there's two kinds of concepts. There's the church triumphant and there's the church militant. The church triumphant will be when we all get to heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. The church militant is what we're in right now. You're in a war. You're in a war that makes all the other wars seem like nothing. And now that's hard for some people to grasp, but I'm just telling you. And in the military, we have what we call time and grade. And it's an incredible concept because it's true in Christianity. The grade you make will be your rank. A corporal, PFC, sergeant. But it always is in proportion to the time that you served. In other words, you don't come out of basic and they make you a colonel. You don't come out of basic and they make you a sergeant. There has to be a process that you go through that has those two concepts. Time, how long you're in, and grade, the rank that you make. Always in proportion with each other. In World War II, they came up with a concept that was pretty, I understand why they did it, but it was pretty ridiculous looking back on it. They were so short of officers in in the World War II theater of operations, both in the Pacific and both in the European theater, that they came up with the idea of what they called OCS, which was Officer Candidate School. And it was a program that you sent a young man with great potential, and he went away to an OCS school for 90 days. That's three months. What I'm saying is he came off the street went into OCS because he had the intelligence and passed the criteria for it, and then immediately went into OCS school, and three months later came out as a second lieutenant. They called them 90-day wonders. In the military, the best officers came out of West Point. All the generals of World War II, all the generals that we have today, all are West Point graduates. But above all of that, the best officers, the best officers in any combat unit, the best officers will be the ones that came in as privates, became NCOs, and then became, through a battlefield commission, became an officer. They learned how to survive. They understood When you go to OCS, you got your rank or grade based on your schooling, not combat on the battlefield. You have the grade, but you had no time. And after 90 days, you come out with your shiny second lieutenant bars on. And they were put in charge of a combat unit with guys who were privates, who were corporals, who were sergeants who had been in combat for maybe one or two years. They've been on the line, many of them, in in Normandy, in Bastogne, and places where, you know, while this guy was back in the States doing his thing, these guys were learning how to stay alive. And they knew what would get them killed. And there was a real resentment with the common troops over these guys because they didn't know what they were doing. They'd get into a combat situation, this lieutenant, because he demanded respect because he was an officer, and he had to give him respect because he was an officer. He would order the men to do things that everybody on the line knows half of them were going to get killed because that's not the way you do it. In other words, he could not learn in 90 days what it took a combat vet two years to learn in the trenches, but he thought he could. The average lifespan in World War II of a second lieutenant was 16 hours. Sometimes he was killed by his own men. It's about understanding how spiritual growth works in the body of Christ. In Christianity, a novice may know some things about the Bible. He may have been through discipleship one or discipleship two. But until you've been in combat, until you have got down in the mud in the trenches for a period of time and you really understand how it works. 
But tell you something, in world in war, there's some things that you better learn to stay alive. And in Christianity, there's some things you better learn to spiritually stay alive. Something about real combat that takes all the pride out of it. I've talked to World War II vets and had to have them give me their stuff so I could display it, as you so many of you have seen. And most of the combat vets that were real in combat, they just wanted to come home. They had their unit patch on. They maybe had their CIB or their jump wing, but they didn't flower a lot of things up. They, did, they knew that what they had done was what they had to do. There was no pride involved, brother. It got taken out the first time they held their dying friend in their hands with his face blown off. But the guys had never been in combat. Oh, they, they looked like an Army-Navy store. They went into Paris and went into Luxembourg and went into these places and bought all the ribbons and all the medals and all the agulets and all the things that they could wear and went home looking like they just stepped out of a parade. Combat will take the pride out of you. It's hard to be prideful about who you are when somebody's trying to kill you. And in Christianity, when you really get in the thick of it and you take your stand for God, it's hard to get all lifted up when every day somebody's trying to kill you spiritually. Just kind of takes the edge off of it for you. A new Christian, four or five years, has to have some time to grow, time and grade. Time will represent the length of time he has served and been saved and ministered. Grade will be the depth of doctrine he gets to that point in the same time span. Second Timothy 3.16, the word of God is profitable for number one, doctrine. When the two balance each other out, and he matures and grows in time and listed up in grade and does more for God, he can handle more of the ministry because <clears throat> he sees the depth of the ministry not just the surface. 1969, when I finished basic training, the sergeant major who was over our battalion, training battalion, his name was Sergeant Jingles. (laughs) Yeah, you laugh. (laughs) Only behind his back. (laughs) This guy, I still got my... my, uh, yearbook from basic someplace, this guy just look at his picture will scare the fire out of you. This guy was something else. And he gave us a talk on the night of our graduation. And I remember just like it was yesterday. He said, you know what, men? Right now, you're tomorrow, you're going to graduate from basic and you're going to officially be in the army. But he says, you don't really understand anything about the army yet. He said, 10 years from now, if you're still alive... You see how the army, as it really is and how it works. And what he was saying was, the longer you're in the army and train and learn to fight, the deeper you get into the army and you understand it. And when you stay with it and you understand how it works, and as you understand how it works through the time and the grade, you'll be promoted up the chain. That's how it works. He went in as a private at the end of World War II. Now, keep in mind, this was 1969. He went in as a private in World War II, fought in Korea, fought in Vietnam, had three or four tours, three wars, and had come to the place where now he was a command sergeant major, the highest he could go at that time. And he understood the Army inside and out, and he was more than qualified to explain it to us who didn't understand it. And right now, many of you are novices when it comes to the ministry. Many of you, you're in your first year after being saved or or just gotten saved or two or three years in even being saved. But as you grow, you see the depth of what the ministry and church is really all about. You'll see the depth of the doctrine of the church and how it all plays into everything. And it begins to take focus and take shape. When you get that time and grade, and it's a tender balance between the two, you'll be able to see and understand how the church works and how you work in it. Now, the difference between the army and the ministry is that in the army, you get deeper into it as you see it and understand it. In Christianity, 
where the army gets deeper in you, uh, you get deeper in the army and Christianity, the Bible gets deeper in you. And you understand it, you grow. You're tried through things. And when you don't go through that process, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, you get lifted up with pride and you fall into the condemnation of the devil. And don't misunderstand, Job 41, 34 says the devil is the king over all the children of pride. You know why? Because it goes way back to Genesis before 1, 1, he had a proud look. And many of God's people today follow Proverbs 6, 16 and think they're following the Lord. Well, you can't be following God with pride and arrogancy in your life and not following the Word of God. You know, you know that when it comes to your spiritual growth, you decide how far you're going to go. I mean, I can preach good sermons all the time, lay out great Bible studies, have the greatest lessons, have a thousand people there at your beck and call to help you. But at the end of the day, you decide how far you're going to go in your spiritual walk with God. Your walk with God is like a spiral going up. You don't want to go down, you want to go up. And it's like walking one of those staircases in a lighthouse where it goes around in a circle up for maybe 100 feet. Life's like that. And when you get saved, you're at the bottom and you start to go up. And you'll go around two times, maybe moving up, and then you're going to find an obstacle. That obstacle was put there by God to help you get to the next level. When you're in a church, when you have people working with you and you come up against that obstacle, then right there, you have the wherewithal to help it, solve it. That obstacle may be something in your life that you're not, you hadn't been willing to give up yet. It may be somebody or something that you know that's got to go. And when you give that up, you know what you do? You go up to another couple rungs. And then you're going to hit another problem. There'll be something else in your life that God's showing you now. <clears throat> You've got to fix this. You've got to change this. You've got to do this. And when you fix that and change it, you keep going up again. And you'll get another three or four levels and there'll be another issue. This issue will be, again, about something that God is showing you that's got to go, got to change. And as long as you keep dealing with those things and you take the church, the Bible, and the Word of God and all that God has given you, and you get those things worked through in your life, you keep going up. But when you finally hit the problem that you're not willing to fix now, when God shows to you, this is what's wrong with you. You got to fix this. You got to let this go. You got to change this. And you simply say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to fix that. You delude yourself into thinking, I can have a walk with God with this in my life. You're done growing. And you're not going to come into church the next morning uh, or next Sunday and say, I just want everybody to know I hit a snag in my life and I'm not going any farther, but I'm glad to be here today. You're not going to do that. Your pride now is going to kick in and you're going to pretend you're okay when you're not. And you're going to stay right there on that spot and their pride is going to force you to play the part if you're something that you're not now. Something you refuse, we refuse to deal with. <clears throat> now let me say this. This rod of pride that you have and I have and use will also be the rod by which God will bring us down. Bible says, Proverbs 16, 18, pride cometh before a fall, destruction before a fall. The rod of pride is what God uses to destroy the Antichrist, and he'll use it to bring us down because we think that we, we can get by with it. You ever notice, <clears throat> Chuck Norris is a favorite, a great, he's a Christian, by the way. He's a, great, he's a great Christian, and he's a, I love his movies. He doesn't make any real blockbuster movies like Star Wars or anything. He wouldn't fit in a Star Wars deal. But he sure likes to... You, if you ever have a bad day and you just want to beat the world up, just put one of his movies in. Steven Seagal is another one. And I noticed something about all these guys. When they fight somebody, most of the time they don't have anything in their hands. The other guy's got something. 
and they are, I mean, the guy's got a big, big club or he's got a gun or he's got a knife. And this guy, he got nothing. But he knows he doesn't need nothing. Because he's smarter, faster, quicker, and better than the other guy. And this guy is so foolish that he thinks he's going to go up against Norris. And he comes to that thing, and Norris just stands there, and the guy, he'll, he, they'll both do it. They'll take away whatever he's got and beat him to death with it. <laughs> and when you come to God with your rod of pride, Amen. he's quicker than you. He's smarter than you, he's faster than you, and he's tougher than you. And he'll take it right out of your hands and beat you to death with it. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Look at the last part of verse 3. But the lips of the wise shall preserve them. Wise lips will keep you from pride and destruction. Not only the things that you say, but the people that you listen to. Now, this is one of the great concepts in all the Bible, God's preservation. It's an incredible study. Man is preserved because he stays in the structure that God has provided for him. And you'll notice if you ever want to study it in the Bible that there's three basic structures of preservation that God has preserved in the Word of God. It's incredible. The first one will be in the Old Testament, and that'll be the nation of Israel. Israel's preservation depended on what their nation did. Charles Krauthammer, who is a, a Fox News con- contributor, and I, I like to listen to him. I, I think he's, an, he, he's, I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but he's got a lot of insight. And he was talking about the nation of Israel one time, and he said this. He says, Israel, the nation of Israel is the very embodiment of Jewish contingency. You know, it's always been amazing to me that people hate the Jews. I'm not saying he does. They hate the Jews. They can't stand them, but yet you can't deny them. And he was making the point that Israel is the only nation on earth that inhabits the same land that it was given 5,000 years ago. He said it's the only nation that speaks its original language that was developed 5,000 years ago. All the rest are gone. He said it's the only nation that worships the same God. He said it's the only nation that bears the same name. Where are the Hittites today? Where are the Babylonians today? Where are, the, where are the Assyrians? Where are the, where are the nations that, the, that were talked about in the Old Testament? They're gone. You realize that there's only two nations that bear the same name? One of them Israel and the other one is Egypt. And in the Bible, Egypt is God's people and represents the preservation of God. And Egypt is a type of the world. You know what that tells me? Those being the only two nations is telling me that God's people will always be here and the world will always be here. And you get to choose which one you're going to be part of. The preservation of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament structure for every Jew. When Moses was met there and with God in Exodus chapter 3 verse 2, God spoke to him through a burning bush. And Moses looked at it and he was astounded because the bush was burning. But he says, it's not being consumed. It's not burning up. And the reason why God spoke out of him, uh, to, to him out of a bush that burned was not consumed is because that bush is a picture of the nation of Israel that it may be burned by the fires of this world. But God's preservation, it will never be consumed. Whew, incredible. 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 The second hand of preservation of God was was in the Word of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament. God's hand of keeping the Bible pure for 6,000 years. As I said last week, I love the Bible because the Bible is the only thing I have. It's not of this world. It's supernatural. You know, in history, we talk about the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there's only one of them left. But you know, in the Bible, coming down through the Bible and history with God, there's seven spiritual wonders of the world. 
that God put on this earth, and the Word of God is one of them. The preservation of the Word of God, one of the most amazing feats of all the history of mankind, all through history. People talk about the inspiration of the Bible. Well, we believe the Bible's inspired of God. Well, I do too, but I'll tell you something else. What good is it is the fact that God inspired something at some point in time if I can't get a copy of it that he didn't preserve it? Third preservation of God was the New Testament church where God provided the nation of Israel, their structure. God provided the New Testament Christian, their structure. A structure so you and I could stay where God wanted us to be keep us accountable, keep us from allowing sin to creep in and keep us from getting prideful. But the lips of the wise shall preserve them, it says. Now look at verse 4. Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increase is by the strength of the ox. (laughs) Scratching your head looking at that verse, I can see it now. Looks complicated, doesn't it? I mean, you're asking yourself, well, so far we've been talking, what's the context here? You know, my rule number one, I mean, we've been talking about a wise man, a foolish woman, builds her house, and now we've got an ox. <laughs> and we've got an ox in a crib, and the crib's clean. <laughs> and then we've got a much increase by the strength of the ox. Okay, how does that fit into here? I mean, come on, you know. Time and grade, my friend, time and grade. <laughs> now, what he's saying is really simple. In the context of what we're talking about here, he's talking about a man who is prideful versus a man who's not, a woman who builds her house versus a woman who does not. And what he's saying is simple. You get an ox because you want to do some work with it. But an ox has to eat. Costs you money. Got to feed him. So if you're going to make a living and make a profit, You need an ox that works more than it eats. Now, I can give you the best example I know. Sitting home right now, I know what they're doing on my couch. (laughs) Buddy and Daisy. (laughs) Brother and sister labs. Without a doubt, the two laziest dogs on the planet. Cost me $100 a month for dog food. Cost me $10,000 a year for vet bills. Not counting the bones, they love the ones with the stuff stuffed inside of them. And yet they do nothing. (laughs) They got the greatest noses on the planet. I get up in the morning and 12 hours earlier, one of them knocked a bone way under the couch. I didn't see it happen. I don't think they were recording it either. I'll sit down there, try to work on my sermon, try to do this. My desk is right there by the couch. And Buddy's over me barking, coming over to that couch, doing everything, but he knows that bone's under there. He smells it. So I got to get down on my hands and knees. I got to move everything around, reach back there and get that bone. He knows that bone's under. If I could just get them to sniff out drugs. <laughs> I'd make a million dollars. I mean, we went on the Staten Island Ferry. Did you notice that dog there? Everybody that came in, he had to smell the person's bag. Oh, my dogs could do that. Take them to the airport, man, and they can smell out drugs or smell out bombs or smell out gunpowder or whatever. Man, they'd be up and down there. They got noses. They can find a bone 60 feet under the couch. (laughs) They won't do it. They just sprawl out on that couch and just look at me. They know when it's time to eat. They don't even have watches. Never get off that couch. Now, let me put it in a practical application for you. In the Bible, oxen are likened to Christians. Don't know if you know that or not. You know an ox is not born an ox? An ox has to have a special operation that makes him an ox. You know you're not born a Christian? 
You have to have a special operation, Colossians chapter 2, that makes you a Christian. Oxen are hooked up to a yoke to plow fields. Matthew 13 says the field's the world. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29 and 30, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you because it's a lot easier than the world's. Oxen work best in pairs, husband and wife teams. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, talking about marriage and you getting married, says don't be unequally what? Yoked. You're oxen. Believe it or not, when an ox is pulling a load and he gets to an impasse and he can't go on, you know how he rests? He rests by kneeling down on his front knees, standing on his back. But every position, every child of God should be in when you're reaching impasse on your life. You hit your knees. Tough when an ox is smarter than most of God's people. Now, my job as a pastor is to feed you, give you all you can eat. But as you grow in the Lord in time and grade, here's the principle. I expect you to do more work for God than you eat. I expect you to be the ox that turns a profit for the Lord. I expect you to be an ox that doesn't just sit around and eat all the food all the time, but you do more work than you take in. We saw in Luke chapter 19 a couple of weeks ago the story about the pounds, how God gave this guy, everybody a pound, 10 guys, and they came back and made investment. That's what you and I are supposed to do. We are to be making investments within our life. And we in this church... Our goal in this church is to turn a spiritual profit for the Lord, an investment. But that will never happen with Labrador Christians who just eat and sprawl out on the couch. And a lot of God's people like that. Probably what led old Bob Jones Sr. to preach his famous message on some dogs I have known. Now verse 5, a faithful witness will not lie, but a false witness will utter lies. Now, the context of verse 5 will be our little guy up there in verse 3 with the rod of pride. <clears throat> verse 5 is saying when you're filled with pride, it will force you to be a false witness and to lie. Why? Because your pride won't let you be wrong, so it has to be other people who are wrong, so you position yourself by making them look bad and you look good, bearing false witness, half-truths. A faithful witness will always tell you the truth, He has nothing to lose. He won't tell you one person half truth and tell somebody else no truth. The truth is always the truth to him. His story will always be the same to everybody. He's open and he's transparent. Now look at verse 6. A scorner seeketh wisdom and findeth it not. One of the greatest telling verses in all the Bible. I've met people, Christians, all of my life that was on a pursuit of truth, wisdom, and understanding, and yet they never find it. And the reason they can't find it is because of pride. It blinds them to any real truth. And bless their heart, all their lives, they go from one place to another, one church to another, and they never find what they're looking for. You see, his pride will always get in the way, and he becomes to the point where he can't see him, and it's right in front of him. This morning I was ready, kind of in a rush to get out of go to church. And I, uh, <clears throat> I have to always put my keys, my phone, my wallet, always in the same place. If I don't, I come in in a rush, throw them here, throw this here, and then when I've got to leave, I can't find them. So I have one spot. My wallet goes here, my keys hang up here, and my phone goes right here. Well, whatever happened, I put my wallet someplace else last night. And I'm up here, last thing I'm doing, I'm ready to get in the car, car's running. I mean, uh, I'm ready to go, got to get to church, can't find my wallet. I look upstairs, I look downstairs. I look where I'm supposed to put it, it wasn't there. And I looked everywhere. I thought, okay, I went back, got all my pants I wore yesterday, wasn't in there. Got the jacket I wore, wasn't in there. I thought, well, maybe I put it in my desk, wasn't in there. I'm looking all around the place, and I can't find that thing. And finally, in desperation, I walk back out there, and I stop, and I think to myself... Where did I put that wallet? And then I looked exactly where I always put it. There it was. <laughs> I asked myself, 
I looked there three times and did not see it. And it was there all the time. And I'm saying to myself, why couldn't I see it? But the reason why, because I was so preoccupied with looking for the wallet that I didn't see the wallet right where it was. And so many times we get so busy looking for the truth, we don't see it right where it's at. And that becomes a problem. That's pride. It becomes a rod of pride. That rod will become so heavy in time, it will destroy everything about us. And we wind up just a bitter, cantankerous old shell of a person. Last part of that verse, but knowledge is easy unto him that understandeth. Listen, for you and me to have wisdom, there are some things about God and his word that we better let somebody teach us. Time and grade. Mark Twain said one time in life, it's not the things that we don't know that mess us up, but rather the things that we're sure of that are simply not true. And boy, that is such a great statement. So many of God's people operate completely outside the way God operates. And you'll try to tell them and pride will blind them to it. And you know, it's a thing where uh, you see how easy the victory of God really is. When I was up in station at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, I had a TDY for a funeral up, I forget the seaport, Gloucester or one of those places. It was a great place. And I had a lot of time to kill, and I always like to go down and look at all the ships down there, you know, and I talked to this old guy, and I asked this guy, I said, you know, most places only have one lighthouse. He says, I said, there's a lighthouse here and a lighthouse here. Why do you guys have three lighthouses in this harbor? And he began to tell me that this was one of the trickiest harbors that, that anywhere in the world. And he said so many ships were wrecked and messed up because trying to get into the harbor, they would follow the light uh, of a lighthouse or a fire on the shore, and it would be deceiving to them, and they'd run aground. And he says, about 100 years ago, somebody came up with the idea of putting three lighthouses in strategic places, one here, one here, and one here. And when you're out in the ocean coming into the, into the in, trying to make your approach, you see three lighthouses. And he says, will you angle your ship? He says, you want to get the angle of your ship where those two, three lighthouses all line up and become one. And he says, when those three lights become one light, he knows you're right on the right course to take you safely in the harbor. He says, you see two, you're going to wind up on the rock. You see three, it's going to be a disaster. He says, you have to take those three lights of those lighthouses coming in on your approach and make those three lights into one light and stay right on that one light and you'll get safely into shore. Years later, I thought about that and I thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly what every Christian has to do with the three most important structure concepts that God ever gave him. The principles of the Word of God. The only way you know for sure it's of God is to line up the principles. Get all the principles that it only see as one. And you know what it is? God's three lights are. God's structure for you and for me. One is the Word of God. Two, the local church. Three, is the leadership of the pastor that God has given you. Those three line up, you're going home safe. You just line them up the way you want to, you're going on the rocks. It's just that simple. It's not hard at all. Verse 7 says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when thou perceiveth not in him the lips of knowledge. Now, the last verse is simple and straightforward and very clear. It goes back to the principle on association that we've talked about many, many times. When you perceive that somebody is caught up in pride and what they're saying is not biblical and they're blinded to it, then you move on in life. The Bible says in Galatians 5, 9 and 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, a little leaven leaveth the whole lump. Stay away from it. The devil will not miss the opportunity to get you into the details and confuse you in hope of blinding you too. I've never understood it. We do it all the time. When somebody has a bad cold, you stay away from them. I don't know how many times I've been up to hug somebody on Sunday morning and they say, you know what, you don't want this, stay away, stay away from me. And I said, thank you, I don't want that, thank you very much. When they have the flu, you don't hug them. When they have some sickness that can be communicated, you don't drink after them, you don't eat after them. 
the old days when they had measles and they used to put a quarantine sign on your house. You couldn't go out. And the reason why you stay away from people like that is because you don't want to catch what they have. But yet you hang out with, with, with prideful people and you'll catch what they have and the devil will make sure you do. He really will. With time and grade, you'll see how God's people will identify themselves by who they associate with. My old grandmother used to say, my mom used to say it, I've told you before, the old saying, birds of a feather flock together. Eagles always fly with eagles. Buzzards always fly with buzzards. You don't see a mixing. And it says, go from the presence of a foolish man. That's simple. <clears throat> when a man or woman moves <clears throat> in a direction that's not biblical and has the rod of pride, he goes his way, you go yours. He's headed down, <clears throat> you're headed up. He's headed for a fall. You're ascending to new heights. It's a lot like this, and I, <clears throat> I leave you with one of the most practical examples that I could give you here on a very practical portion of the Word of God. If you went to the airport <clears throat> tomorrow morning and you wanted to go to L.A., and there were on a tarmac, there were two planes both going to L.A., and one plane had a big sign out in front of it that says, this plane will make it to L.A. safely. And the other had a big shine out that this plane will crash one hour and 40 minutes into the flight. Which plane would you get on? That sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it? Nobody in their right mind is going to get on a plane that's going to crash an hour and 40 minutes into the flight. Well, based on the Bible, doctrine and truth and principles, whether you know it or not, people have a sign hanging on them. And when you have the perception through time and grade to read the signs, sign one says, I'm going to get all from God that I can. Sign two will say, I'm going to crash and burn. And you just got to ask yourself, which one am I going to get on board with? It's just that simple. This is why God gave us the Bible. This is why the principles of the Word of God are so important. You look at life and everything in life, you see it from God's standpoint, what He wants you to do then you and I have to make the decision of which way we're going to go. As I told you earlier, nobody on this world will decide when you stop growing spiritually other than you. There's lots of problems in life. There's lots of problems you'll have to face as a Christian. There's a lot of things out there that will hurt you, a lot of things in the dark that will bite you, a lot of things that will try to throw you off track. But I can safely say this morning after being a Christian and in the ministry for over 40 years, the greatest enemy we have as Christians will be ourselves. What and who we allow to influence our lives and take our focus off what God wants us to be. We'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.